Hello, greetings. We're glad that you've joined us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. I'm very encouraged about your interest in spiritual things. Today's lesson will come from Paul's letter to the Philippians in the second chapter. We begin reading in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoiced with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, with honor, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, making his life, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Philippians 2 is coming after Philippians 1. The beginning of the book, we see that Paul and Timothy are writing to the saints of Philippi with the overseers and deacon. In Acts 16, we read about the establishment of that church in Philippi in around the year 51, and it happened despite persecution. And Paul is writing this letter a little around a decade later, 60 to 62, uh, while imprisoned in Rome. You can read about that in Acts 28. So he's writing to them on his con- to update them on his condition, to uh, speak about Epaphroditus, to provide some encouragement and exhortation to some Christians who are decently mature in their faith. In chapter 1, verse 3 through 11, Paul had prayed to God in thankfulness for these Philippian Christians, and he prays that Christ will finish the work 
in of him in them, and that they may grow in love and righteousness. He had spoken in chapter 1 of his condition in verses 12 through 26 that it worked to advance the gospel. That some preach Jesus out of goodwill, but others out of rivalry. But Paul rejoices that Christ is preached, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that it was better to go and be with Christ, but it is more necessary for Paul to remain to do the work. In verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul wants the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, not only to believe in Christ, but to have the opportunity to suffer with him as well. And as we begin what we call chapter 2, we do well to recognize that Paul isn't writing chapters and verses. That's added far later, that Paul is writing out one letter. And granted, we can see theme blocks in the letter. And we see that in chapter 2. We begin with an if-then. Uh, so then, there's a con- it, it's based upon what has been said before, but it is a new thought. So it's not as if the chapter division is entirely inappropriate. But we do well to recognize that what he's saying here is rooted in the idea of being worthy of the gospel and, and live as people, behave as people, worthy of the gospel. How can they do that? Uh, well, uh, here, as in verse 28 of chapter 1, where he, 27 28, where he emphasized unity in the gospel and unity in the faith, he wants his joy to be made full. If exhortations or encouragement exists in Christ, if there's consolation and love, if there's fellowship, that koinonia, the association, joint participation, the spirit, or tender mercies, that great splachna, bowels, therefore compassion, we saw in Philippians 1.8, uh, and, and the tender mercies are, uh, if these things exist, um, it's effective rhetorical device to go through all these things, if any of these things exist, which, of course, if they don't, we're in big trouble, right? Uh, so the whole idea here is these things exist. So if these things are there, then complete Paul's joy. How do you do that? The Philippians can do that if they maintain the same love in one accord with one mind. To do nothing on account of uh, strife or selfish ambition, but in humility to consider others as greater than yourself to seek not only our own interests, but also the interests of others. Paul then continues the idea of having the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this leads to verses 5 and 11 of Philippians chapter 2, which we'll talk about here in a second. But before we get there, these four verses here are such a a powerful verse set. Uh, worthy of meditation application to emphasize that maturity in the faith involves not just doing righteousness as an individual but working to be of one mind to be of the same love in humility considering the needs of others that's really where it's at to get beyond oneself in many ways so then paul encourages the philippians to have this mentality that christ has if we're going to condense what he's trying to say here Jesus was equal with God, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He was humbled to the point of death on a cross. God then raised him and exalted his name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God. That's the gist of what Paul says here. And the message is must be crystal clear before we get into the weeds of what's being said here. What Paul is trying to emphasize to the Philippians is clear. The Philippians need to prove willing to humble themselves and to count others of, of higher esteem. To use that model they have in Christ because 
that's the means by which God can exalt them on the last day. If you have, as Jesus humbled himself and emptied himself, and God raised him up and lifted him up, uh, so it will be also with believers. If we uh, suffer for Jesus, if we humble ourselves for Jesus, God will raise us up and and lift us up. Now, there are so many theological questions that come out of this section of Scripture. Is it a creed? Is it a Christ hymn? Or is Paul just waxing eloquently? A lot of verses turn this into some kind of poetry, and there is kind of a poetic feel to it. Uh, Paul does affirm that Jesus divine before his incarnation in verse six that he was in the form of God, and he did not. But what what does it mean that he considered it robbery, or not a thing to be grasped to be equal with God, to remain in that condition? And to what depth did Jesus empty himself? And that word "empty" is ekenosin, which is spoken of as a kenosis. Uh, the kenosis is Jesus emptying of himself in Philippians 2.7. What are we supposed to say about Jesus taking the form, which is a morphe of a servant, dulu, can also be slave, in the likeness, homoiomati, an appearance, the schemati, like a schematic drawing, the same Greek word, of a human, an anthropos, uh, in Philippians 2.7 and 8. We do get an idea from Hebrews 5.7 and 8, the idea that, Paul, that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered that there's that level of emptying himself, that he had to learn these things. But um, it's important to kind of keep some boundaries in what's being said here, because there's nothing that Paul says here that's inherently inconsistent with his declaration in Colossians 2.9 that in Jesus the dwellness of the, of the divinity, the Godhead dwells. Uh, there's nothing contradicting John saying the Word was God, the Word was with God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that he lived in the flesh. Uh, and Paul is writing long, long before all the controversies that would come about over the nature of, of the Lord Jesus. And and so we can see in there that he's not necessarily trying to come out with some view of Jesus not having divinity while on earth. He's not trying to suggest uh, anything of that sort, uh, or that somehow Jesus is, was not equal with God in the sense of being of the same nature and type and essence and substance and will and purpose and things of that nature, uh, as some would like to avert. And no, that these things are not Paul's concern. And he's not trying to suggest them, as we can see from his writings in other places, and even from the actual wording that he uses. But it's a great meditation on the sacrifice of Christ, that he did empty himself on our behalf, and how that should inform how we look at ourselves, conduct ourselves, and treat others. Because he didn't do that because uh, he had some sin of his own. He didn't do it for his health. He did it for us. Because otherwise we had no means by which to be reconciled back to God. And so we didn't deserve it. But we're to have the mind that Christ had. And so how, if we have this mind of Christ then we will treat others appropriately, and we will seek their best interest. What Paul is really doing in in these verses is really underscoring what he said in verses 1 through 4. And we shouldn't forget about verses 9 through 11. Yet Jesus does does not just humble himself deeply. He's exalted greatly. As low as he emptied and humbled, he was even more magnified and and proclaimed and exalted that every knee 
will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus on that great day. You'll either do it willingly or you'll do it begrudgingly. But everyone will do that in this picture. And so he continues on as a conclusion of that. Okay, because of these things, because of how you complete Paul's joy, because you need to walk in the way worthy of the gospel, because you need to have the mind among you as Christ Jesus, he says of the Philippians. They are to remain obedient. They remained obedient when he was present, now even more so that he is not with them. They need to remain obedient to work out, katergazaste, their salvation with fear and trembling. And then in verse 13, that is God who uh, works in them to will, to thelane, and to work, to energain, for his good pleasure. They're to do all things without questions or murmuring, so they can be blameless and harmless, lights among a crooked and perverse generation to hold firm the, the word of life. In, in verses 14 through 16. And if they do this, Paul will have a reason to glory uh, in the day of Christ when he returns, because he did not work in vain. We got this beautiful illustration in verse 17 to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, that he uses the idea of a libation. Uh, it may not be as familiar to us, but a lot of times the way that you would offer a drink offering, a, an offering of wine or, or, or of some beverage of that sort, is that when there is a sacrifice on the altar, an, an animal, you would pour uh, the, the wine on the offering, on that sacrifice. Uh, and that would be how you would offer a libation offering, a, a, a liquid offering. And so here he's taking that as an illustration of the faith of the Philippians is what's being offered, the sacrifice, the thing that is being given up to God for his good pleasure, and he is being poured out on it in his prison and his suffering. And Paul frequently identifies and associates the sufferings he's going through for Christ with the spiritual welfare of Christians, even in a very far away place. Uh, comparatively. If he's in Rome, Philippi, it's not necessarily the greatest distance, but there's certainly distance involved. But yet there's that connection, there's that association that Paul is making. And uh, Paul is not doing this begrudgingly, that in fact uh, he is glad. If the, even if this is happening, he is re he's glad, he rejoices with them, and uh, the Philippians would do well to be glad and to rejoice with Paul. Uh, this is not the first time, and not the last time he's going to mention the theme of rejoicing. And when, especially when you consider Paul's circumstances, that's very compelling. Now, in these verses, there's a lot of things that can be taken in all kinds of ways. It's kind of like earlier. Very easy to pit verses 12 and 13 against each other. Uh, you work, you obey, you work out your salvation, you're troubling. No, it is God who's working in you to will and to work. Uh, and it's, in, it's, it's set up as an either-or. But it's the same guy writing the same... Writing to the same people, and he's writing one verse after another. He's writing them together, and so they work together. We must obey. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But at the same time, as we do that, it's really God working through us for His good pleasure. Likewise, the idea of not grumbling or questioning. If we just took verse fourteen out, it looks like it's trying to speak against any kind of. Uh, examination of thing, or to ask to, to inquire into things, and just uh, here's what you're supposed to do, shut up and do it. And that's not really Paul's saying. Um, murmuring or grumbling, crushing, murmuring, these kind of words go back to Israel in the wilderness. Not so much an honest inquiry 
into who God is and how we're supposed to serve Him as much as it is a rebellious desire to, uh, to n- not putting trust in God. That's that's what's really the issue. That you're supposed to do what Jesus says uh, so that you can be innocent and blameless in this generation. Uh, it's not about rebellious question or disputation, but to focus on being that light in a very difficult place and time. And all of this is a very important lesson for us in context, and the danger of just lifting verses uh, when you've got explanations, or you've got two thoughts that are being set next to each other that are really paradoxical for intent for you <coughs> to sit at you on, and to try to figure out how they're working together. But if you're just coming through and taking one and leaving the rest, that's going to, to really distort what the Apostle is saying. Then in verses 19-24, Paul now focuses on Timothy. And he's talking about particular matters here in, in this time. He wants to send Timothy to learn how they're doing. Uh, he says, Timothy's unique. You know him. That A lot of other guys are out there. They don't really care about things of Jesus. But Timothy does. Uh, he's really concerned about the welfare of the people of God. And he serves with Paul as a child as a father, and he's advancing the gospel. He's going to send Timothy soon, but hopes to himself as well come, as soon as he is able, when he sees how things are going to go in Rome. And But then in verse 25, through the rest of the chapter, the end of 30, he, he, he wants to explain why he's sending Epaphroditus. Uh, Epaphroditus is described as a fellow Christian and worker in the gospel. And the Philippians had sent him to Paul to assist him in the work of ministry. Epaphroditus longed to go back to the his fellow Christians in Philippi, because they had heard of his illness. And in fact, Paul testifies to the very severe illness Epaphroditus had, that he almost died of it. But that God had mercy on him, and not even just him, but also on Paul, lest Paul have double sorrow. And uh, so Paul sends Epaphroditus so they may rejoice and have less reason for sorrow. But they should commend him, because he proved willing to, you know, be, to almost risk his life, risk his life, and to almost die. Um, in order to uh, make up for what is lacking in the service of the Philippians, as Paul puts it, uh, and how how much how exactly to read that, as if there's a, a full deficiency and he's trying to point something out to them, or if this isn't agreed upon. Yeah, you know, we 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 needed to do this, and and we're really glad for this. It is hard to know uh, with all this distance between us and the text. So that's Philippians 2. And, the, and there's a lot here. Um, in the first four verses, one of the most powerful passages of Scripture, I personally frequently refer to this, a great way of looking at what really it's all about. That mature faith involves being of the same mind, having the same love, of one accord, of one mind, operating out of humility, seeking the best interests of others, and to reflect the mind of Christ. And it doesn't matter how old we are in the faith, how long we've been a Christian, we can always meditate on this passage and find ways that we can be uh, effectively seeking to practice this in our lives. And really, uh, what Paul's after here is what he's been talking about even earlier in chapter 1 and verse 27 and 8, the idea of unity. That we need to be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he's really telling what's involved in unity. Very easy to talk about unity and reduce unity to the point of doctrine. Uh, in First Corinthians one ten, we're to be of the same mind and uh, to, to to not have disagreement, divisions among one another. 
Paul does say we need to be of one mind, but that's not where the full emphasis is, because doctrinal unity is expected, but it's not the easiest kind of unity. It is more of an objective measure, by objective, subjective standards, perhaps. But it's it's one thing to agree upon what's true, and it's quite another to work together as one in mind and heart, sharing in love and being in one accord to do what is true. Uh, there's lots of times where two people can agree on what is true, and yet they don't find it easy to work with each other. Paul himself had experienced that with Barnabas in Acts 16 regarding John Mark. It's not like there was some kind of doctrinal disagreement. It was about what to do with John Mark. And uh, they, they, they went their separate ways because of it. So, uh, unity, even among like-minded people, even among people who work side-by-side side together, sometimes it's not very easy. And Christians should aspire to it, but Paul makes it very clear what it takes to do it. It's, there's got to be humility in considering the needs of others over our own. That's the only way it happens. You cannot accomplish true unity while people are more concerned about what they think and their needs. That there needs to be real openness to the ideas of others, to the needs of others, and to consider them before ourselves. That's not to say that there's no self-consideration. We are to consider our own needs. Uh, and he said, look, each of you look not only to his own needs. There's an interest. There's an expectation that we look to our own interests, but we also need to look at the interests of others. And we need to find ways to mitigate the times where seeking our needs is, is a hindrance to seeking the needs of others. And to find ways to elevate the needs of others over our own needs. This is the the, the, gam, the, the, the the gauntlet thrown down by Paul in terms of reaching mature faith. And are we willing to move toward unity in this way? Likewise, verse 5 through 11, you can never say enough about that passage and the great theological truths. And uh, it's a hot, it, can be, it can be a hotbed disputation about exactly what he's trying to say. And there are times and places to discuss those things and it's not really my desire or interest to get into all of that right now. But uh, however uh, we, we work through those things at those times, we should not allow them to cause us to miss what Paul's really trying to say and why he's saying it, that <clears throat> this is the mind of Christ. We say, the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? It's this model of humility. Now, granted, none of us are going to be able to do this. None of us can count an equal robbery to be equal with God and think to be equal with God, think to be grasped, to empty ourselves, to become humble ourselves to becoming a man, and not only a man, but dying on a cross. Uh, we could lose our lives. We could suffer uh, terribly in the name of Jesus. But it will never be quite to the depth that Jesus descended for our behalf, on our behalf. And that's why, though, we should be proving willing to empty ourselves for others, to serve others, even if it leads to the point of death. Jesus, in his life, used himself as this model. That who would be great among the people of God must be their servant, and the one who would be first among the people of God must be the slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, in Matthew 20, 25, 28. Um, in First John three sixteen, the great love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. So, we need to seek others' interest to to the, the greatest sacrifice we can offer. Um, that's what it's all about. <coughs> Excuse me. And likewise, there's a lot of conflict about verses twelve and thirteen. A lot of people focus on obedience and working out salvation. Others want to focus on God working in us to will and work for His pleasure. 
And so we're supposed to realize that both of those are happening at the same time. How? That's something we may not fully understand. But we are working and God is working. And we must always remember that. That there are times where we emphasize the human aspect and the human work. There are times we have to emphasize the divine work. But we must never emphasize the divine work to the neglect of the human response. We must never emphasize the human response to the neglect of the divine work. That both are exactly what God intends, because we see both themes very prevalently throughout the pages of Scripture, especially in Paul's writings. He also talks in verses uh, 14 through 16 about living as blameless and spotless in a perverse and crooked generation, that we should not be like Israel in the wilderness, who questioned and murmured, but we should be firm in our belief that God has made his decree for our benefit, that God is not leading us to die, but leading us to live. And it's interesting that we read this. I mean, you could stand up and to cry out, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And that sounds as relevant in 2015 as it must have sounded in the year 60, 61, or 62 when it was originally penned. And it is that concern that we need to hold firm to the word of life, to seek to live righteously, to maintain confidence not in ourselves or in our culture, but in God and his purposes, and to never get so comfortable with the world that we forget there is that distinction. That indeed it is a crooked and twisted generation. It always has been, and it always will be. The rest of the chapter we've seen was about Timothy and Epaphroditus. You know, very rarely are you going to see a lot of citations and quotations and sermons or articles about first Philippians two nineteen through thirty, especially in light of what has come from in Philippians two one through eighteen. You'll see a lot more emphasis in our preaching and teaching on the first, a little bit more than half of this chapter, and not nearly as much on the second part, and it's easily forgotten. And that's mostly because it's about contextual formation. It's it's very much what Paul wants to say to the Philippians about these two men. But there's some things we can learn about how Paul talks about them. We can see the great confidence he has in Timothy. We can recognize the great value in that one person that you really know holds firm to God and his purposes, really invested in the work of God. And Epaphroditus proved willing to come and minister to Paul in a very dire situation, and, and ended up getting really sick because of it, but recovered in God's mercy. It's very interesting as you even see Paul here, that in all the rhetorical skill, all of the all the times he writes with a bit of bravado, perhaps, that he knows it's not a one-man show. This is not the Paul show. I mean, if it is a one-man show, it's a Jesus show, but it it's not even that. That God's work is to be accomplished by many people working together and individually. And he goes out of his way to commend all those who diligently work to accomplish God's purposes. That the Timothys and the Epaphroditus in the church have value. They're known to God, and good brethren should commend them. And to recognize it's not a one-man show. That the, the people of God are most effective when they're working individually and together to accomplish God's purposes. That's the way it's always been. It's the way it always will be until the Lord returns. So we've seen here uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-30, through 30, that we need to establish unity in love, mind, and purpose, to have the mind of Christ, to humble and empty ourselves so God can exalt us, that we should work out our salvation in fear and trembling, God is working through us, 
in us, and to live righteously in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and to commend the servants of the Lord. So let us pursue unity of the faith, to work out our salvation, to maintain righteousness despite the evil, to submit to God that he may work in us. And we're, again, so glad that you've joined us, and we hope that you've been encouraged by this uh, explication of Philippians 2. If you've got some questions about some of the things we talked about, you'd like to talk about them in greater depth, maybe you have some just questions about other passages or other, other issues, maybe you just need to talk, maybe you have some prayer requests, any way we can be of service. Uh, please let me know. Please contact me through our website, theverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And you can also learn more about the Venice Church of Christ at venicechurchofchrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Google+, Twitter, at Venice Church, Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.